Retain Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Gain, Grow, Retain. Uh, for today, I've got Richard Owen, who is the founder at OCX Cognition and coming to us uh, from the West Coast today, I believe, out in uh, the Arizona, uh, or out in, yeah, Arizona. Um, and so, Richard, appreciate you uh, hopping on and joining us today. Uh, thank you very much. We like to think we're West Coast. There's not, <laughs> not a lot of coast, but uh, uh, if California has a major earthquake, we'll be coastal probably. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's funny. Uh, well, I like to start off, you know, uh, we can get to know you a little bit and uh, start off some questions. I like to go off the cuff, uh, not give you a lot of prep time. So um, I'm noticing a chessboard behind you in your office. It looks like in your office set up. So are you an avid chess player? Is that more of a decoration piece, you know, that you put in your office? Uh, what's the story? Well, well, it's a bit more of a decoration piece. I mean, I, I, I do play chess, but I wouldn't describe myself as terribly good. One, one of the things that's impressive about chess is... Um, is that you, how humbling it is. Because you know you, you might think you've played a while and you might think you understand it. And then you always run into people who are so much better. Um, and because it's a game without chance, you really have nothing to fall back onto when you're humiliated. So I, 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 think, it's, uh, I, I think it's a good, good thing. I mean, certainly the tendency in Zoom backdrops, of course, is to put up like bookshelves and books you publish. Yeah. You know, the sort of vanity collection there. So I think chess may be somewhere between, you know, vanity and practical. Yeah, I like it. I'm, I'm definitely a novice chess player. Um, I kind of have a fascination with it, though, because I've always enjoyed games of strategy. And um, just like you said, you know, there's you can kind of read back in history about these famous games. And, you know, there's certain moves that they pulled and, you know, those become famous and people study those. And it's just really I mean, it, it's funny, the whole subculture that's kind of come out of chess and how you, um, you know, really can start studying these things over time. So I've always enjoyed that. But I'm definitely like you said, novice chess player. I couldn't beat myself probably out of a paper bag, you know, but I enjoy uh, watching it every once in a while. There was actually a uh, random tidbit. There was a YouTube cross with Magnus Carlsen, who, you know, is a uh, chess uh, grandmaster. And um, it was fascinating for like three minutes. They had, they had a chess board in front of him and they said, Hey, we're going to put the chess pieces in a certain way. And you tell us what game that's from, when it's from all stuff. I mean, he was reciting stuff from like 1952's game of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, and then they were asking, okay, what's the right next move or what happened after that? You know, and he would actually go through and like play the rest of this game. And it's just like, you know, his mind is obviously crazy, um, crazy good. And, and, you know, sure. That's how he's got some uh, photographic memory, but that uh, just random tidbit. I, I watched that for a little bit and that, that was fascinating for me. Well, now there's of course, you know, the sort of millennial era chess versions where they play very, very high speed chess. Yeah, and uh, they have naturally, you know, YouTube personalities who will trash talk their way through these high-speed chess games uh, online. And and on one level, it's like, okay, it's not it's not your father's chess game. It seems very undignified. But I think in many ways, it's it's incredibly entertaining to watch. And and I think it popularizes the game. It's now become one of the most popular online games amongst the under thirty group because of this. So you know, bullet chess. You know, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's it's good, right? Anything that advances these things, I think, uh, you know, pro probably more healthy than just playing Call of Duty all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, it's it is uh, interesting. I was reading an article too recently about how like these sports leagues, like NBA, uh, Major League Baseball, like they're all trying to figure out how do you start. You know, our attention spans are getting less and less. So how do you create games that are quicker, that are shorter, that are um, 
have more impact in shorter amounts of time. So I think you're gonna have to find that elsewhere too, which is interesting. Um, well, what, you know, before this, as we were preparing, you know, I think one of the things that we had talked about is just your, you know, you've got such a plethora of experience across the, the spectrum in SAS and, um, you know, some of your consulting work early on in, in, in your career as well. And um, I think the thing that we kept coming back to was that, you know, SAS is becoming a predominant model. And um, really, though, what maybe is sexy about SAS is when you get good unit economics, you know, you actually get it working and you become profitable and it works in the way that um, is successful for the company. And so the word you use, though, is that we kind of have to transform retention. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, you think about good unit economics, kind of this idea of transforming retention, like, you know, what, what does that mean to you? Like, what's the, the thing that comes to mind when you start looking at, you know, SaaS becoming a predominant model here for businesses? Well, I think there's the SaaS is an evolution of the software industry and there's the general motion in a lot of businesses towards thinking about lifetime value of customers. You know, if you look, if you look at SaaS from a purely software industry perspective, you know, the traditional on-premise software business had very favorable unit economics for software vendors. You know, you sort of sold people something, took all the money up front, charged them 20% to basically provide tech support. And, um, you know, 50% of the time, they never successfully implemented it. I mean, that's not a customer-friendly model, but it was a great way of building companies very quickly. And, and in the late 90s, you had companies go from literally zero to a billion dollars in two to three years which at the time was you know, unfathomable using this very cash flow favorable sales model. Uh, and, and those of us who are old enough to remember that time, you know, the end of quarter close ritual, you would be on the phone at 11 o'clock at night selling things with the hour to go because you could recognize revenue on it. So SaaS comes along and I think instinctively makes better sense for customers. So customers now have balanced the equation with vendors and, and software companies have to sort of start to think about how do we actually deliver value, shock horror, and how do we make sure that customer who now is a long-term equation financially, not, not a short-term equation, keeps coming back and buying. And early sort of SaaS economic models, I think we're very slow to recognize that. In 2005, 2006, the, the banks, the venture capitalists even, didn't really know how to organize and measure SaaS companies. And that all started changing, I would argue, sort of uh, the late part of that decade. And venture funds like Bessemer started coming up with really good thinking about how do you measure companies in SaaS. And the first instinct was to measure acquisitions. So they invented customer acquisition cost. Let's see whether or not we're efficient at acquisition. That then started to switch as people realized that the real money wasn't in acquisition efficiency. The real money was in retention. And that wasn't obvious for a long time. It certainly wasn't obvious amongst investors. Customer retention cost and the idea of sort of net dollar retention, you know, how do you actually grow accounts you're already in, wasn't really fashionable uh, amongst mainstream investors, I would argue, until five, six years ago. Right up to the current day where if you speak to the more progressive private equity companies or venture investors, they'll say net dollar retention is the metric it's the indicator of, of future success for a company. It's the predictor of not so much just growth, but profitable growth. And then you get the world's most successful software IPO, Snowflake, come along and just blow all this out the water and say, oh, yeah, we have 200% net dollar retention. And you know, people's heads exploded. 
And I said, don't worry, now we're scaling up to 800 million or whatever. Oh, it's down to 150 net dollar retention. And, and the unit economics bar just got raised from, well, can we retain 80% of our contract value to, oh, 95% of our contract value to, oh, maybe 100% net retention to 120% net retention to, why aren't we doubling every year just from our existing customers? Yeah. And that economic imperative, which of course is what makes the world go round, right? We can all talk about noble causes, but your venture investors or your private equity or your public market investors, they don't really care about a whole lot in the end, except for economic value creation. So as entrepreneurs, we care about obviously the mission of the business, but the investors want to know what's going to float the equity value of the company, and it's going to be net dollar retention. And, and Jeff, I think that's the backdrop for everything, is this changing mental model of how value gets created for shareholders. And that means any business in the software industry wakes up today and says, you know, acquiring customers, yeah, it's hard. But if I can't take a customer I acquire and not just retain them, but grow them, I'm just not in a competitive economic model. Yeah. And that spins off a lot of implications for how you run the operation. And to your point earlier, who you sell to and what you sell to them, which are taboo topics among sales and marketers, because the answer is always, you know, anything I can and anybody who buy it is the two traditional answers. And now you start to think, well, is that really a good business model? Because if I care about lifetime value, what if I sell to people who are never going to use my product or who are going to hate me? Yeah. Is that really a good deal? So, so I think everything changes when you start to think about lifetime economics and net, net retention. Yeah, there's uh, so many things in there. I mean, I think the, the first thing that just pops into my mind, you know, is um, as you're talking, you know, the, the idea that, yes, we all have to kind of buy into the, we all have to believe the mission, right? We all have to believe in the company and believe that we're doing something um, that will positively impact our customers or positively impact society or whatever it might be, right? You kind of always want that to be at the forefront, but um, I do like your point, you know, at the end of the day, there is a bottom line and somebody, whether it's the, you know, whether it's the founder of the business who still owns a majority or whether it's the, uh, you know, the, the public shareholders or whether it's private markets, like somebody at the end of the day is going to care about the bottom line. And so um, you still have to be pretty upfront about that. And I think that's been something that I've, I've noticed and learned um, throughout my career, you know, is that um, it's okay to talk about and say, you know, I think sometimes it's kind of shot away or taboo where it's kind of like, oh, you know, like, oh yeah, we're going to make, um, you know, we have 120% net retention, but like, uh, you know, we don't want to talk about it that much because, you know, we're, you know, we want to, we want to believe in the cause and the nobleness that we're doing, but like, you know, you kind of need both. I think um, the second thing that I thought was just really interesting too, and, and something that we've noticed and talked about quite a bit, especially from when we were running our consulting firm um, you talked about how, you know, this, this model is changing, right? We need to be thinking about customers for longer. Um, we need to be delivering value because, uh, at the end of the day, you know, um, we don't get the, we don't get the full dollar up front. We're kind of getting the dollar over a number of years. The other thing I think has just been, become really interesting as well is that, um, I feel like competition has never, has never been higher either, right? Your, your switching costs is actually getting lower each year because it's easier to make software, um, it's easier to store data, right? We're making mechanisms and ways for this to, this is all kind of coming down. Uh, and maybe the switching costs, you know, for me to change a Salesforce, right, is going to be hard because of, of the institutional knowledge that that has and what happens. But, you know, by and large, most software companies are not your institutional kind of ERPs or CRMs, right? You're, you're looking at solutions that 
um, help you do a job, but at the same time, the switching costs are low. So now, not only do I need to deliver value because um, I'm getting your dollar over time, but now I also need to make sure I'm delivering value because there are seven other companies lining up at the door that say, hey, I can deliver the same amount of value or more than what you're already getting today. And you know, it's still a, a software solution that's delivered uh, you know, via the web and, and, and via cloud-based solutions. And so it's like, oh man, like that, that also is becoming, I feel like such a hard uh, or for, for teams to grasp, especially when you start looking at customer success teams, because you're saying, hey, the competition is becoming so high. We can't just be having check-in calls. We can't just be having, um, you know, uh, events with our customers or, or meetings with our customers that aren't driving value because all of those moments are starting to matter more and more. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're blessed enough to be selling people something like an accounting system, which they really, really don't want to change. Yeah. Um, that's great, but for the vast majority of SaaS applications, uh, you're absolutely right in the switching costs have declined, competition has increased. The amount of venture that goes now into SaaS is so high that almost every possible uh, domain area has multiple com competition. And every generation of technology brings a new generation of competitors along because people will look at the next generation application technologies and say, oh, I can do it better than the last bunch of guys. And so your customer has choice. Now, your customer doesn't really want to change. I mean, the good news here as an incumbent is, you know, very few enterprises wake up in the morning saying, boy, it'd be really fun to spend the next six months unplugging a system and putting an entirely new one in speculatively in the hope that we'll essentially end up in a better place. So incumbents have an advantage, but I think that they're perfectly capable of squandering it. And incumbents also have a slight disadvantage in that their pricing is essentially already transparent and locked. So if you've been pricing a product at, I don't know, 20,000 a year to a customer, and your competitor comes in and says, well, we're gonna build a comparative product at 10,000 a year, it's kind of hard for you to decline. None of, you know, your economics don't favor you cutting price. Their economics favor them acquiring at a lower price. So you have to often defend, uh, defend your position at a higher price point. And, and that means adding more value. And I'm glad you mentioned customer success, because I feel like one of the biggest innovations from the last decade was the creation of customer success. And on, on one hand, I have, I have a real sort of love-hate relationship with the whole idea of customer success, I have, to, I have to admit. On one hand, the thing I love about it is organizations fully understanding that if their customers do not adopt the product and get value out of the product, they will face an economic challenge. Right, the customer will essentially wander off. And, and that's not a function of technical support. It's not just a function of product capability, although clearly product capability matters a lot. There is an engagement element here and they need to engage customers continuously. And that's, that's a great story. And that's the love part of the story. The thing, the thing I don't over quite understand about customer success is why in the technology industry, our first instinct to solving a problem of retention is to throw human people bodies at it. Let's let's just hire a bunch of humans and yep. get them to call customers continuously. Yeah. Because that feels like the exactly the solution we'd all want to automate away. And I think it stems from the initial instinct, which was let's let's put fingers in the dike with customers. We've got we're sprouting water everywhere. You know, let's start bailing out faster. Let's put fingers in the holes. 
as opposed to asking ourselves more fundamental questions, perhaps like why is this happening in the first place? Yeah. How do we uh, how do we basically fix the upstream problems that are causing these problems? And I go a step further. There's a risk that companies perceive customer success as the silver bullet. So, oh, we've solved all our problems with retention now because we have a customer success team, and they're going to storm in and essentially improve net dollar retention all on their own. When in many ways, they're an organization that is, is kind of a sweeper. They're there to sort of pick up the pieces. Um, the problems usually lie somewhere else. Yep. And it's, it's impossible to expect them to solve every customer problem. And maybe, just maybe, if we're not careful, we create an impression across the organization that we don't need to work the underlying problems because we now have this super team of people to go and solve them for us. Yeah. That's inefficient and, and frankly ineffective, I think. Well, you know, what's interesting too, I feel like is, is now we're actually to a point in the industry where a customer now ex- almost expects there to be a, a CSM or a customer success manager who is playing a role. So it's, it's not even, it's no longer, uh, I don't know, even a question, right? Sometimes it's just that an assumption that nobody really corrects in the sales cycle. And therefore you get into a lot of troubles where a customer then kind of crosses the chasm. They, they purchase something and then they say, Hey, I'm ready to talk to my CSM. And you're kind of like, well, actually you're, you're part of our digital led program or you're part of, you know, uh, these exercises that we're doing. And they're saying, whoa, 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 I thought I was purchasing a CS. And so we've, we've actually tied, I think incorrectly at some points, we've, we've somehow tied value to a human person, right. Um, you know, that, that needs to be coupled with the product always. And, and I think that's where you're just running into trouble now too. Um, and we're almost trying to backtrack, right. We're almost trying to go back now saying, well, hey, let's start doing some marketing campaigns and some uh, in-product messaging, and let's try and figure out digital ways to lead somebody to get value and into the products and all those kind of things. Um, so, sure. like well, that's human, human economics won't work for every category of customer. I mean, if you say, okay, we've got our top top ten customers who, you know, we we have a hundred thousand a year ARR, and you're like, okay, I get it. You you can build an economic case for putting humans on that. Yep. But I'm always amazed running a business today, I'll buy a SaaS product that I pay two or 3,000 a year for, and I've got some CSM calling me. I'm like, does this work for you guys? I mean, I appreciate the attention, but yeah. really? I mean, is the economics there? And so I, I think that, as you said, the expectation uh, can be there amongst customers that they're going to get more personalized support than is economically viable. Yep. I think companies don't get the economics right. And to some extent, that doesn't matter for them in a high growth phase when, uh, you, you know, venture investors or, or, or whoever may be happy for them to keep buying growth and look at the end of the day, they're throwing money at retention. That's okay. Yeah. But at some point in the life cycle of these companies, they hit a point where some investor says, hey, can you become efficient at this, please? And, and at that moment, you know, there's this thud as people realize that, you know, the economically efficient way to create lifetime value for customers isn't going to be throwing human beings at it late in the cycle to correct problems. Uh, they're going to have to get more sophisticated with digital, yes, with customer segmentation, yes, with much more intelligence around customers and product usage and problems. And so we have to, we have to sort of back off that human capital investment and replace it with, a, with smarter humans. I, I don't think we're going to get away with you know, eliminating these roles, 
But I do think we can make these roles massively more productive. Yeah. And I think that's got to be our, our, our challenge. Yeah. I actually love the way you just worded that too. Right. Um, Cause I, I think there's kind of two, there's two things that I think about maybe as being underinvested areas. I mean, one, just, I think the investment in a customer data platform. So something that you can actually put all of this activity into, like, I think we just underinvest in that right now. I think people just automatically inherently think, Oh, Salesforce will take care of this for me or whatever tool I use will just write back to Salesforce. And it's really not meant to be, I mean, Salesforce can be cobbled together to do it. Right. But that's not really the, the sheer example of what it's supposed to be doing. And so like, I also, I, I think just the teams earlier need to be thinking about, okay, we're starting to collect all this data on a contact level. What, how can I start organizing that in a customer data platform or some, some way, right? How can I start organizing that point in the future? Maybe it's not today, but at some point in the future, I can then start actioning. I can then start creating mechanisms to kind of action off that. I think that's one that I've just noticed that, that we don't really invest in a lot early on. And I think the second one, which you just hit on too, is um, how can I make my CSM's time the most effective and most impactful that it can be? So is that QBR really the most impactful or the best thing that they can be doing with that customer at that time? Or um, is a check-in call really, you know, like whatever, whatever it is, but how do you really go optimize and start saying, okay, if, if we are going to, you know, like you said, if we're, we're going to have a CSM on, on these accounts, then I need to make sure that they're just doing the, the, the right activities at the right times and really trying to optimize for them. So I think the, those would be the two areas that I've seen um, and like thought about most as being areas to invest in um, that I think is getting more into the systems, the technology, and almost like the, the data intelligence side. Yeah, and obviously, look, I mean, that's a great tee up. I mean, it's certainly something, given our focus on exactly that from a technology perspective, we're, we're big believers in it. What, what I would say is, there are a lot of systems that companies need to execute up and down that customer value chain, right? I think customer success systems, which by and large do a great job of serving the needs of the CSM are a sort of instrumental plank in the overall technology architecture. I don't think anyone's suggesting you don't need trouble ticket systems, you know, outstanding support systems. You're going to need systems to help implement. And of course, you're, you're going to need all the sales and CRM infrastructure. Um, all of those pockets are essential to get to a point where everybody in that value chain is effective and efficient. You need to be able to integrate that data into a single sort of viewpoint. Um, and, and these silos are only useful so far because at the end of the day, customer experience is not determined by a single function within the company. Functions are just our way of organizing human capital. Yeah. Right? I'm always amazed at how much talk around customer experience seems to center around the contact center. Now, look, I'll tell you, contact centers are useful, they're valuable. In many ways, they're, they're a cost of failure. People don't call contact centers because they want to, they call them because something else occurred that forced that necessity. So we've built contact center solutions to remedy more fundamental problems we didn't want to solve or weren't economic to solve. But the notion that customer experience is delivered through the contact center is a fundamental fallacy. Customer experience is a cumulative impact across a whole range of things that the customer experiences. And, and that, of course, encompasses the sales experience, the early life experience, which is hugely important. What happens once they purchase that early experience? Uh, often in SaaS, it becomes implementation, onboarding. And then you switch into this 
product usage model where customers want to get value out of the technology, the rubber hits the road. And, and of course the software industry is beautiful because the product doesn't stand still. So what they thought they bought isn't what they end up using. And it's certainly not what the product is a year later. So there's a constant evolution of product. And then there's natural support issues and there's renewal cycles. So it's, it's not an over, uh, over complication to say that customers have this journey which comprises all of these different elements. And if we're going to come up with optimal answers for customers and efficient answers for customers, we have to embrace the reality of pulling data from all these systems and making sense of it the way the customer makes sense of it. And the customer doesn't think of it as functional. They don't think of it as systematized. They think of it as their particular viewpoint. And their viewpoint isn't that you have functions and the functions do their jobs. And their viewpoint is they interact with the company as a totality. So that reorientation towards the customer viewpoint is an achievable analytic exercise. Uh, and I think it's where we're gonna get most of the really smart intelligence. But it's, it, and it doesn't, Jeff, it doesn't replace the need to optimize particular functions. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be great at tech support. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't build a customer success team that's, that's highly productive in its own right. But it means you have to look at it the way the customer sees it, which isn't the same way. And the winners are the companies that understand uh, how to optimize that end-to-end -end experience and, and not, not just sort of sub-optimize by focusing on being really good at one part of this. Yeah. It, it reminds me too of like, um, I think it just reminds me, right? I think agile methodology got started in, in software, right? We're kind of um, doing the grooming process. We're getting two-week sprints. We're getting into this. But, but really, if you, kind of, if you kind of take a step back and say, hey, can you apply this elsewhere, right? It's really just in this mindset of breaking work down into small enough pieces that we can um, get those things done systematically. And as a unit, right, we're all kind of working on things that essentially add up to a whole and we're getting those things done in a, in a specific way or specific order. And I think that that's the thing you have to think about too when you start thinking about the customer doesn't see department, right? It doesn't matter if I reach out to a support rep and I ask a question, um, if you can't answer it, I don't necessarily need you to tell me, hey, you're gonna go talk to the product team or the engineering team, right? I don't necessarily, like, all you need to tell me is like, hey, I don't have the answer, we're gonna go find it, right? We're gonna go get get something done. But like, that's the, I think to, you know, to your point, the reason why I brought up um, Agile though, is thinking about that for customer experiences, you know, how do you get those things um, and collaborate on those in a, a more of a succinct way? How do you start moving on those yeah. and just generating, like have a bias for action. I've, I've uh, thought about that quite a bit recently is, um, you know, your customers just want to see action is happening. And um, if it can, you know, get momentum and, and get a bias for action, then your customers are going to respond to that. So um, I think I like the, the point you made earlier too, that the customer isn't going to see silos and they're not, they're not necessarily sitting there um, thinking, oh, I'm talking to my customer success manager. You know, I've uh, they're going to have to go talk to the product team or they're going to go talk to the marketing team or whoever. No, they're, they're just going to be talking to who they know at the company. And, you know, at that point, then, you know, they're just relaying information or want something done about it. Yeah. So, so it's interesting you say that. I mean, I think agile is a term that gets banded around a lot in, in this context. How do we build sort of customer agile teams? And I think what people are digging at is, is what they don't want to be. Yeah. They, they're conscious of the fact that if, if, if you're not careful, you set up all these operational performance objectives functionally that seem to sort of run, create, create real impediments to solving customer problems. Well, 
we've run out of funding for the implementation phase. We're going to stop implementing and kind of give the customer whatever, whatever was funded because, hey, we're on a margin target here in professional services. So this is as far as we could get. It's not the perfect implementation. But now let's top spin lob it over to tech support who have their sets of metrics that are efficiency-based uh, or the success team that have their efficiency-based metrics. And I think what we imagine Agile to be is a world where these functions can somehow overcome that and find ways to solve a complex customer multifunctional problem without breaking the bank, but yep. also without creating these natural barriers and walls or, or sort of suboptimizing. And, and I think that, you know, in the past, there was this belief that you could sort of have the one ring to rule them all. Let's just have one owner. Let's have the golden person who is responsible for everything. It's too hard in a, in a universe of specialization and skill set definition to accomplish that. Yeah. Right? We need hunters who are good at hunting. We need pre-sales engineers. We need professional services and onboarding and training experts. We need customer success managers and technical support experts. And if we're going to have a team that's going to ultimately have to coordinate very effectively and allocate assets and time and resource very effectively across this universe, we're going to have to get more agile, more flexible. Um, and actually, the good news is that I think this is what most people working in these environments want, right? They want to work in an environment where handoffs are smoother, teams collaborate more effectively, there's less of a sense of how do we operate within our narrow definitions of success and we start to operate effectively as a collaborating team. Yeah, It's not easy and it runs against a lot of the way companies structure their financials. And I hate to come back to that financial story again, but uh, one of the you know, two simple problems that ripple through the customer experience. One is the wrong acquisition economics. If you create the wrong acquisition economics, sales teams sell the wrong products. Yeah. And if they sell the wrong products, customers, you'll be fighting that problem way down the road. If yeah. you get the wrong acquisition economics, you sell to the wrong customers. You sell to people who honestly shouldn't be buying your product. And then those customers are gonna create big drag effects financially down the road. So acquisition economics, actually affect lifetime value economics and very few sales and marketers, I think tragically realize that a dollar is not a dollar in the, in the selling cycle. Yeah. And then you get into early life experiences when if customers don't get stood up properly, if they don't get onboarded properly, if they don't get trained properly, if they don't get deployed properly, if the integration is not done correctly or what have you with your product, um, then again, all you're doing is kicking a whole bunch of economic problems down the road yeah. and saying, okay, you know, let's solve it. And, and finally, and you get the gist here, a lot of problems downstream can track right back to product problems, right? If customers aren't getting value from the product, if customers are having, uh, you know, obviously tech support problems, is that because we're trying to invest in fixing a problem downstream or fixing the problem upstream uh, you know, why, why, do you, why do you need all these resources downstream if the product's working as advertised? Yeah. Yep. That, the, um, the, a couple of things that come to mind to me that, that stand out, right? The, the point that you made about, um, you know, the kind of selling to the wrong customer and, the, you know, those unit economics, 
you know, I've always found one, one great thing that customer success can do is, is be helping to sharpen who the right target customer is over time, right? We kind of take it for granted. We think that that's done just between sales and marketing behind a closed door. But, you know, as the customer leader, right, you've got a base of customers who are using your product and you can easily start saying, okay, who are the ones who are renewing, who are using the product for the great things? What are those stories? What are they doing? And then how do you start boiling that into stories that you can then go back to your marketing and sales teams and say, look at these great customers, right? Here are the ones that are working well. Here's how, if you start breaking those down, here's some of the, here's some of the meat on the bones, right? Here's some of the, the revenue targets they might be at, or here's uh, employee sizes that they might be. Here's where they are and what industries that they might be working. But like if you can start to, it doesn't have to be perfect, but if you can even just start telling an ounce of that story, you can get your foot in the door with the sales and marketing leaders as they're looking at, okay, where are we going with the go-to-market for next quarter, for the quarter after that, for three quarters from now, right? Like that's that's how you start to turn the tide, just like you're saying to say, hey, we're, we're missing the mark somewhere. But I think rarely do um, you see customer leaders kind of like take that mindset. But I do think it's starting to become much more of a reality because you're starting to get involved in that go-to-market. And if you're not bringing something to the table about your current customers, then you're going to lose that seat pretty quickly. No, I mean, one of the most, popular questions I got asked over the years was, how, how do I get company? How do I build my company to have an 80 point NPS or a 70 point NPS? And, uh, you know, what should we do to our customers to get them up there? And I said, no, 80 point NPS companies get there by never selling to customers who will dislike their product or company. That's how yep. they do it. They, yeah. they solve the problem up front. They don't spend a fortune remedying downstream issues because they don't have any. Yeah, they they understand who it is they're selling to their target market. They understand what they do well, what they have optimized their entire value chain for. Yeah, look, look I mean, Apple's obviously the most overused example over the decade of you know a great customer experience leader. But I mean, I don't particularly like Apple product. I'm not their customer. They know who their customer is, yeah. and and they advertise pretty clearly who their customer is, what their products are like. You know what you're getting into with the Apple universe. And so you don't get too many people going, wow, this wasn't what I expected. Yeah. Uh, so I do think you can learn downstream what works and refocus your upstream efforts. Because if you're thinking about lifetime value economics, then that makes perfect economic sense. Yeah. Acquiring customers who aren't going to stick around or going to be very expensive to service makes no financial sense. It doesn't work. And, and some SaaS companies have flatlined at scale. They hit 60, 70, 80 million of recurring, and they flatline because to some degree, the, the leaky bucket's now catching up with the ability to pour water in the top. Yeah. And, and it's very hard to turn that around versus a company that's grown on the back of uh, extremely satisfied loyal customers who are buying more every year. It's extremely hard to slow that down. Yeah. That business just keeps growing. So I do think there's a sales and marketing narrative here that marketers need to uh, embrace. And, and by implication, boards and management teams need to rethink. It, it, is it just about acquiring customers or is it about acquiring customers who are going to stay with your business uh, for decades? And, and I think if you take the latter point of view, you're, you're going to be much more successful. Yeah. It's, it's um, so interesting too, because it's almost like supreme focus on the, on the front end, right? When you start thinking about the, the sales and marketing angle, right? Um, like far too often you, you think of like this, 
uh, peanut butter spread that they're trying to spread too thin, right? It's they're trying to go so wide. They're trying to, to kind of increase the TAM so much, right? Oh, look at like, we're kind of increasing TAM because we're moving markets. We're going out. Um, and I think like you're getting at, right? Honestly, that starts to create more and more challenges and, and certain businesses can get around that, right? Because if you've been in it long enough, you can, um, you can maybe circumnavigate some of those things. But if you, if you do that too much, yes, you're increasing your TAM, but now you're creating a lot of problems on the back end that you can't necessarily account for. And the product might not even serve right um, as you start going. Well, and the software industry is hardly, uh, you know, shrinking wallflowers when it comes to asserting business benefit, right? We're all taught as marketers a decade ago, hey, don't sell uh, features, sell benefits. So we all decided to sell benefits. So every product solves world hunger. You know, your typical software company is going to, you know, double your rate of growth of revenue, massively improve net retention, cut your costs in half. None of this is likely to be true. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to accomplish transformative results, but we're, we're creating expectations we now have to make real post. And, and I think that, uh, you know, that's, that's a challenge for companies to balance the needs to be, how can I put it, aggressive in marketing? Yeah. Um, well, at the same time, sensitive to the fact that we aren't in the old on-prem software universe anymore. The customer's still there. And yeah. now we need to deliver on that. Uh, and that delivery, by the way, has implications for margins, which a lot of VCs don't like that conversation. Say, so, well, we want 80 point margins. Well, if you're going to service the customer effectively, maybe that's a, a pressure point. So I, I think, Jeff, the industry is maturing and shaking itself out. And, and people are getting more sophisticated. And I think we are starting to understand better the behavior of customers, how to analyze customer behavior, how to arm teams with data to make them more productive, um, how to sort of avoid just uh, solving problems downstream as opposed to upstream. My, my prediction, uh, as a guy who's in the prediction business, I would say is that the winners of the next decade are going to be companies that exhibit some of these tendencies. First of all, they're gonna really understand who their target customer is for a lifetime of success, and they're gonna sell in a much more targeted fashion to them. So there's much better fit up front, and that's gonna reduce downstream costs and effort, uh, and those customers are gonna have higher lifetime value. I think even in enterprise, there's, in, there's increasing models of more and more landing and expanding, right? How do you avoid the tendency to have to embark on monstrous projects as opposed to expanding based on success, which I think is Snowflake's story. And you know, I think it's gonna be the story of every really successful SaaS business is that they, that they get in efficiently and then they grow based on internal success narratives. And then I think to your other point, all of these customer facing teams are going to get increasingly agile. You know, look, I don't wanna to be too Pollyannish about this. I think at the end of the day, everybody living in harmony and you know, singing, I want to buy the world a Coke up and down the entire value chain might be a stretch. Yep. But can we get a lot better? I, I don't see why not. And I think that will be productive for everybody. And it will also be a hell of a lot of better company to work for, by the way. Yeah. I feel like everyone's serving customers more efficiently. Yeah. Um, man, that was a really good summarization of, uh, what we just hit on. And then also given some predictions, I mean, I think I could talk to you, uh, definitely about, I think there's a couple of just underlying topics too, that would just be so fun for future episodes, especially around 
like understanding unit economics and finance, uh, like the financials of a SaaS business, right? You, you actually get so much value if as a leader, you can understand that really well um, because you start to understand, you know, if you're leading the customer teams, do you know what that means for you? Like you said, uh, as margin worry for the business, um, you know, what are we, what are we counting as CAC costs um, versus service costs? Like, how do you start thinking about where some of these things live and, and how it impacts what you're doing? Recurring revenue, retention, renewals, how are we, how there's a methodology. And so you're, your finance leaders actually applying methodologies to those things. And you need to be able to understand those. Um, so that'd be, that'd be fun. NPS seems like it'd be another one to, to talk through too, but um, Richard, I appreciate you coming on today. It's been fun. If, um, if people want to find more about you, uh, where's the best place to do that? You know, uh, d- uh, don't be bashful. You know, this is the, the, the self-promotion piece. Well, obviously, you know, the, the, the new venture, OCX Cognition, we're there on, on the web, as you might expect, ocxcognition.com. And uh, that's a great place to learn a little bit more about the business. Obviously, uh, easiest way to reach me is uh, richard.owen at ocxcognition.com, or I'm now on LinkedIn, uh, so feel free to connect. And, you know, this business, our new business is all about bringing that analytic and data set to the entire end-to-end customer journey. We are predicting the level of performance of every customer in terms of loyalty, MPS, uh, for every single customer every day using a, an operational data set. So we'll build this massive data set of how customers are performing <clears throat> with the goal of giving these teams, these cross-functional teams, tools that they can really use. So you know, we spent a long time in the MPS industry measuring through surveys. We're now measuring through predictive analytics. And, and I think it's uh, it's all just one step as companies start to get their arms around how to more efficiently and effectively achieve this golden objective of net dollar retention, which uh, I, I'm convinced, and I think a lot of investors are convinced, is going to be the, the sort of metric of choice and currency for the next, the next decade. So, um, look, I think it's an exciting time to be in, in this space. And, you know, further to your comment, there's a lot we could talk about the future about economics. The thing that everyone wants to bear in mind is that all of this is advancing and the bar just keeps getting higher. Um, you know, if you're like me, you might have been watching jaw dropped last night, this Norwegian fella break the 400 meter hurdle record by 0.75 of a second, right? And, and what's interesting about that, we're going to date stamp this podcast, podcast forever now with yep. that statement. But what's interesting about that was he pointed to two pieces of technology that had changed the nature of competition. The track, which is an amazing innovation story, which people sort of miss, and shoes, yep. which is an amazing technology story. And then, of course, you've got all the other things that have improved over time, training protocols, diet protocols. A lot goes into moving the bar like that. This is what's going on in our industry. Lots of incremental subsequent innovations occurring. And to be competitive today, you have to, you have, to have the whole thing. You have yeah. to be on top of it. You have to have the track, the shoes, the diet, the training, or the new, new world record is going to be just too far out in front of you. And it all, I mean, it, uh, just like you said, 0.75 isn't very, I mean, it's not very much, right? I mean, when you're, when you're thinking about this, this is incremental wins over time and you have to be good with making incremental wins before you get big wins. So it I like might that point. Be, it might be incremental to put the guy about, you know, 10, 15 feet ahead of the bronze medal. Yeah, you know? that's true. I mean, it, it's the difference between being on the podium and not right. Yeah, for sure. Well, Richard enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, we'll have, we'll have to have you come back sometime soon. Love to. Thanks, Jim. 
Hey guys, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. We really appreciate it. Talk to you soon.